Amen. Harvest. Please go ahead and have a seat. Good morning to you all. What a day to be alive. You know, there are many passages in the Bible that as a pastor, when you get to that passage, you're kind of scared. This would be one of those passages this morning. There's a lot in here, and I can't wait. Part of me is excited to get to it, but the other part of me is like, ooh, I want to do well with this. Well, you've heard it said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Who's heard that? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We've said that here from this pulpit many times. And what it means is simply this, that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your ethnic group. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter what all you've done, good or bad, in your life. The gospel can be yours. That's what it means, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There are no divisions among humanity when it comes to the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus, in our text this morning, he's going to prove that very thing. We've been going through our study in the book of Mark. And the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been sparring with the Pharisees over legalism. He was telling the crowd. Last week, we looked at him telling the crowd that it's not things that are out there that defile us, but the fact that we're already defiled. And today, we're actually going to continue that vein of thinking. Today, we meet two different people, and they are different in many ways. One is a woman, one is a man. One seems perfectly whole. The other is not. One was most likely well off while the other was poor. But one thing that they did have in common, they both needed Jesus. And no matter who you are or where you are in life or whatever is in your background, the same is true of you. You need Jesus. So last time, as I said just a minute ago, we heard something scandalous from the lips of Jesus. He said nothing from the outside can defile a person. And this week, he's going to exemplify that in this statement. He's going to interact with Gentiles. He's going to interact with those who the Jews would have considered the most defiling. Of all things that the Pharisees considered to defile, Gentiles would have been at the top of the list. And Jesus is about to prove that wrong. What Jesus is saying here through his actions is that, catch this, Gentiles don't defile. You like that? I worked all week on that. Gentiles don't defile. And that's the main point of the passage that we're getting into this morning. So I want to look this morning at the reach of the gospel. How far does the gospel reach? What borders does it cross? We're going to look at the reach of the gospel. So if you haven't done so already, please turn with me to Mark chapter 7. I'm going to go back over verses 24 through 30. So follow along as I read. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. 
But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So the first thing that we're told in verse 24 is that Jesus arose from there. Now you may remember from last week, Mark never told us where there was. Wherever there was, Jesus got up and he left it and he goes to the, rear, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Where is that? Well, this is the region known as Phoenicia. Tyre and Sidon are both cities in Phoenicia. And I've got a map here for you to kind of show you Jesus' traveling. He goes north into Gentile country. He goes north to Tyre and Sidon. And as far as we know, this is the furthest north that he's ever been. As far as the Gospels say, we're not, we don't know that he's ever actually been to these regions. Now, why did he go here? Why did he up and leave Galilee and go here? Well, we're not specifically told, but I think we're given clues from the Scripture, and we can give a good guess. We're told that he goes to Tyre and he enters a house. And that might seem to us a little strange because he likely didn't know anybody there. Why is he entering this house? What's going on? Jesus is likely entering a house where someone took him as a guest. And it was common in this culture to receive travelers. As travelers were going from city to city, people would often offer them a place to stay in their own home. You might even remember a few chapters ago when Jesus sent out the 12, he tells them when you enter a house, in other words, as staying there as a guest, stay there. So likely that's what's going on here. So let's just throw this thought out for a moment. How would you like to have Jesus as an overnight guest? I'll just let you linger on that for a second. We were asking, why did Jesus do this? Why did he go to Tyre? Look at the last part of verse 24 and did not want anyone to know. He did not want anyone to know. I think it's very likely that what Jesus is trying to do here is that he's, he's trying to get away. Quite literally, it's like he's trying to get away from the crowds. I think he was trying to get out of the public eye. He was trying to take a break. He was trying to have a vacation, have a breather. And he couldn't do that in Israel. He couldn't do that in Galilee. He had to go north. He had to go to Gentile country to get away. You know, when we take vacations, that's part of the reason why. We just need to get away from it all for a while. And I was, I've heard of, and probably you have too, I've heard of famous people that have gone out in public incognito to hide their identity so they can get around without all the attention. I think something like that is what's going on here with Jesus. And yet... The text continues to tell us in verse 24, he could not be hidden. That is literally could not escape notice is what that means there. Jesus could not get around without somebody recognizing him. And in this case, it's a Gentile woman. 
Now, before we go any further, I want to define Gentile. Are you ready for this in-depth definition? Gentile is someone who's not a Jew. That's easy enough. In fact, just for kicks, I actually looked up the definition online, and it literally said, not Jewish. That's the definition for Gentiles. So we have any Gentiles out there? All right, should be most of you. Our passage today, believe it or not, is of immense encouragement to Gentiles. In our story, Jesus tries to conceal himself, and yet the the, the scripture tells us he could not be hidden. Somebody finds him. Verse 25, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Here's your first point from our text this morning. The gospel can save the prosperous outcast. The gospel can save the prosperous outcast. Let me explain this point. We're told that this woman heard of Jesus. So obviously, even though he's trying to get away, word has gotten around that Jesus is there. People were saying he's here. She hears of this and she goes and she finds him. And the text tells us she falls at his feet. And then Mark gives us more detail about this woman. Look at verse, 30, or verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, if this were a Shakespearean play, this would be the part where the Jewish audience would hiss and boo a defiled Gentile. But it's not that she's just a defiled Gentile. We're told that she's a Gentile, and that word there in the text is actually the word for Hellenist. She was a Greek, but she wasn't actually an ethnic Greek. She was a Syrophoenician And that means that her nationality was Phoenicia in the area Jesus was, but Phoenicia belonged administratively to Syria. So Syria, Phoenician is where they get that. And we're told this because it also distinguishes her from Libophoenician, which is in North Africa. Is that clear as mud? Got all those details? Why are we given all these? Well, for one thing, There was another Phoenician woman in the Old Testament who was very popular. Do you know who? Jezebel. And if you know anything about Jezebel, she is one of, if not the most, wicked women of the Bible. She was queen, married to Ahaz, who, let's face it, was a useless and pathetic excuse for a king. He was king of Judah. This was during the days of Elijah the prophet. You might remember some of the stories. A first century Jew reading Mark would have likely thought instantly of Jezebel as he was reading Mark chapter 7. But not only that, this woman here in Mark 7 was from the city of Tyre. And Tyre imported crops from Galilee. And the people who grew the crops in Galilee were often poor. And mistreated, while Tyre was well stocked with provisions. In fact, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, he wrote this about Tyre our bitterest enemies. All of that is wrapped up in who this woman was. 
She was a Gentile, but not just a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, but not just a Syrophoenician, a citizen of Tyre. She has got some audacity to come to the feet of a Jewish rabbi for help. This would be kind of like in, our, in, in the days of the Civil War, a rich white slave owner coming to a poor black slave and asking for help. How dare they? Verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now we've seen this. We've seen this all through our study in Mark that Jesus encounters people with demons or Jesus is approached by people who beg him to cast out demons from their loved ones and the same is true here. Doubtless, she's desperate. She's desperate for her daughter to be set free and that term for daughter, that could mean young girl, like little girl, but it also could refer to a girl who's of marriageable age. She could have been as old as 12 years old. And we read this and we see her desperation And she falls at the feet of Jesus. And then Jesus says one of the strangest things that we've ever seen come from his mouth. Look at verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. from all points of view, this is harsh. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. Let's break this down. Let's break down verse 27 here. This is a bit of a riddle, but it's not a complicated riddle. People in this day and age would have easily been able to understand what Jesus is saying. It was common for Israel to be referred to God's children. That was very common. In fact, the Old Testament said that. Exodus 4.22 reads like this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. It was very common for Israel to be connected to this term of being God's children. The bread here in verse 27, that's a reference to Jesus' ministry. What Jesus is saying is that his ministry was meant for the Jews first. And by the way, that's always been the plan. The Jews were God's chosen people. All the way back to Abraham, God promised to make of him a great nation. God's promise was to the Jews first. In fact, Romans 1.16, Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Jesus' mission was to the house of Israel first. And he's saying this to the woman, and then he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, dog was and is a common insult. Anyone like being called a dog? When David approached Goliath, Goliath actually says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? In other words, he's saying, are you trying to insult me? Jesus in Mark 7 is using the word dog here to refer to Gentiles. Now, some have tried to soften this by saying that this word for dog in Greek refers to a house dog or a lap dog, and it's not the term that's used for wild dog. Now, that's true. 
That is the, the way this Greek word is used. But let's face it, a dog is a dog. It doesn't matter if you're being called a dachshund or a jackal. That's still an insult. So you put all this together, and Jesus is saying, I was sent to minister to Israel. It's not right to take this ministry and give it to you Gentiles, you dogs. What is he doing? This is Jesus. I wouldn't be surprised to hear something like this from Peter, but this is Jesus. Jesus is intentionally being provocative. He's provoking her on purpose to get a desired response. He's putting an obstacle in her way to create an opportunity for faith. It's a test. Jesus is intentionally creating a test for this woman. Why? You know, if we think through who this woman was and where she came from, we can conclude, like I said, that she was most likely a very privileged person. She was living in, this, in a city that was well-stocked. She was probably comfortable. She probably had all of her needs met. There was just this one problem. Her daughter was harassed by a demon. Now, granted, that's a big problem. And if you consider the animosity between the Jews and the Greeks... It's evident that the fact that she came to Jesus, she is desperate. She is willing to go to a Jewish rabbi for help. She gets to Jesus, and he immediately throws up this obstacle. I was sent to Israel. It's not right for me to minister to the Gentiles. Now, at that point, she has a choice. She could be offended and walk away. She could let her pride stand in the way. She could turn up her nose at Jesus and just walk off. And by the way, that's the response that so many people have. Do they not? They find something about Jesus offensive and they turn and they walk off. I remember hearing how Oprah Winfrey could not get beyond the Bible stating that God is a jealous God. And she thought that was a contradiction within God's character. How could God be jealous? He tells us not to be jealous. See, that was her obstacle. That's when she turned away by her own testimony. That's when she turned away. See, Oprah doesn't realize that when God says he's a jealous God, it means he's jealous for us. Like a husband who would be jealous for his wife if another man were pursuing her. That's her obstacle. Here in Mark 7, Jesus sets up an obstacle testing the Syrophoenician woman's faith. And how does she respond? Look at verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the, crum- eat the children's crumbs. That's remarkable. That is remarkable. It's remarkable because it displays acceptance and humility. It displays acceptance and humility. She says, yes, Lord, which means she accepts what you're saying, Jesus, is true. The children, the Jews, should be the first to be offered salvation. They should be the first to be blessed by your ministry. She doesn't deny that. And she's also saying, you're right. It's not right to take the food away from the children and give it to the dogs. Just in real life, who would do that? 
You know, who would take children's food away and toss it to the pets? That's unheard of. She's not expecting Jesus to take his ministry away from the Jews and give it to the Gentiles. She's just hoping he will bless her too. She says yes, and then she says, Lord. And what is interesting is that this is the first and only time in the book of Mark that anyone refers to Jesus as Lord. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean she's equating Jesus with God, because that term Lord could also be used as a term of respect for those in authority. But it would resonate with Mark's original readers who were Gentiles. They would have read this. They would have known that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, and they would have said, yes, that's right. That's the right response. So she's agreeing with Jesus, and then she makes this incredible statement, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You're right, Jesus. You're right. But even the dogs are benefited by the crumbs that fall from the table. This is daring. This is witty. This is not taking no for an answer. Her response is not angry. It's not demanding. She acknowledges what Jesus is saying, but then she politely makes an objection. And the actual idea of dogs eating crumbs from under the table, that would have been accurate in their day and age, but let's face it, it's accurate in our day and age, no matter how much we try to keep them away. But you know they're really not talking about dogs and crumbs here. They're talking about Jesus' ministry. And just like crumbs spilling off a table, his ministry can spill over from the Jews and reach the Gentiles as well. And she's right. In fact, we already know that Jesus has already ministered to Gentiles. Do you remember the man possessed by the legion of demons in Mark chapter 5? He was a Gentile. Jesus really wasn't opposed to ministering to Gentiles. He was simply testing her faith, and she passed. She is willing to accept that Jews should receive first, and she is willing to accept her place as a Gentile in the great plan of salvation. Jews first, then Gentiles. In other words, she humbles herself. And that's the key to passing the test. Look at verse 29, and Jesus said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. She's put to the test and she passes. She overcomes the obstacle. And I want to say something. This is, this is a side note, okay? Sometimes faith requires overcoming obstacles. At times, God will put something in your path that will seem insurmountable. And sometimes he will place that obstacle between you and something else as a test. Sometimes it's painful. He may remove a treasured friendship. He may allow a difficult person into your life who's constantly goading you. He may allow that job opportunity to fall through or any number of things to fall through. He might do something that is an obstacle to your faith. And the test is, are you going to keep trusting His purpose is not to be mean. His purpose is not to be vindictive. His purpose is to incite us to dependence on him. The purpose behind the obstacle is to motivate 
trust. Are you still going to trust me? Even when something completely unexpected is thrown into your life. How do we respond in a way that honors God? We follow this woman's example. She accepted what Jesus said. She humbled herself. When God throws an obstacle at us, accept that he's in control. This obstacle, whatever it is, it's there for a reason, and our right response is to humble ourselves and to remember who God is and who we are. He has every right to orchestrate your life as he sees fit. We respond by remembering that who we are, we are the creation, not the creator. He is God. We are not. The remarkable thing about this story is that Jesus receives Gentiles, but not just any Gentile, a prosperous Gentile, one that would have been at great enmity with the Jews. But you see, the gospel is not limited to anyone's economic background. What does this mean for us? Well, first, let me just ask this question. How do you approach Jesus? Do you feel entitled? Do you have an attitude that Jesus owes me something? I've been a good person. I've gone to church all of my life. I've done this. I've done that. Do we approach Jesus with an attitude of entitlement? And this woman, in spite of all that she has and all that she, all that she has done in her culture, she falls at Jesus' feet. She is desperate to the point that it doesn't matter who Jesus is. She simply knows she needs him. And what about you? Could your own sense of pride be keeping you from coming to your Savior? Do you see your desperate need for his saving grace? Are you here this morning? And God is working on you. And God is showing you, you need me. And what are the defensive thoughts that come to your mind? Are you going to let those stand in the way? Are you going to let your pride stand between you and Jesus? Do you need Jesus this morning for your own salvation? If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, would you come and catch me after the service? I want to talk with you. I want to answer any questions you have. I want to pray with you. But what about you, Christian? Could your own sense of pride be keeping you from depending on him for your spiritual growth? Could you, like this woman, lay all those barriers aside, just release your pride and simply say, I need you, Lord. Are you trying to do life on your own? Is there any part of you that is trying to do this Christian life in your own strength, out of pride, instead of receiving the strength that Christ offers. Let me challenge you. Pray that through this week. Ask him to show you what are the areas of pride that I'm letting stand in my way of my own spiritual growth. The gospel can save the prosperous outcast. Here's your second point from the text. The gospel can save the destitute outcast. Verse 31, it says that then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. 
And they begged him to lay his hand on them. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now it's interesting, the route that Jesus is taking here is very curious. He actually leaves Tyre, but he doesn't go straight back down to Galilee. He actually goes north. He goes from Tyre to Sidon, which is north, about 20 miles north. And then he's still in Phoenicia, and we're not exactly told why, but he leaves Sidon, and then he heads southeast to the Sea of Galilee, but he ends up on the east side of the sea in the Decapolis. I'll throw up that map again. You can see this is his route. He goes north, north, and then boom, southeast. This, by the way, the Decapolis, is the same area that Jesus healed that demoniac with a legion back in Mark chapter 5. Why Mark included Jesus' kind of circuitous itinerary here is a little strange, but perhaps what Jesus was doing is he could have been making his rounds through the Gentile country. He could have been ministering to Gentiles. Perhaps, and I think this is likely, he was even trying to get further and further away from Israel for a time so that he could have a reprieve because, as we'll see in the coming months, he is about to make his way to Jerusalem. He is about to head to the cross. And it could be that Jesus was getting alone, was getting himself in a position he needed to be spiritually and emotionally before heading to that final journey. Whatever the reason, we're told that he travels the circuitous route and he ends up in the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis, you might remember, that was a group of 10 Greek cities on the east and southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So he's back in Gentile country. He passes through Jewish country, but he's back in Gentile country. So we can safely assume that the people that he's dealing with here are Gentiles. Look at verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on them. Now, if you think about it, this is reminiscent of the paralytic whose four friends brought to Jesus a man on a mat. That man could not get to Jesus himself, and this man can't make an intelligible request on his own. So they, the people here in the Decapolis, bring this man to Jesus, and they make his request for him. And look what Jesus does in verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now first notice that Jesus takes the man aside. He wants to do this privately, and I think the reason for that is found in verse 36. Just jump to 36 real quick. We'll come back to this. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. I think the reason that Jesus takes him aside is he doesn't want to do this miracle publicly. He's trying to be covert here. But then... He does something rather odd. He puts his fingers into the man's ears. And after spitting, probably on his own finger, then he touches the man's tongue. In the past, we know that Jesus has healed people with a mere touch, sometimes with a mere word. He just did that with the woman and her, her demon-possessed daughter. He just spoke and the demon was gone. 
Here, he's touching the man and the parts of the man that need healing. He's putting his fingers in his ears. He's spitting on his finger and he's touching the man's tongue. And I know that's a little gross. What is he doing? I think what's going on here is that Jesus is communicating to the man what he's about to do. Remember, he can't hear. And because he can't hear, he has a speech impediment, which is very common with people who can't hear because they can't hear right, they can't speak right. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting with the man. They didn't have American Sign Language back then. So he's showing him, I'm about to do something. And verse 34, then, he looked up to heaven and he sighed. This is an attitude of prayer. He's looking up to heaven. He connects with his father. He sighs, which again seems to be connected to this attitude of prayer. He connects with the man, then he connects with his father. And then he speaks this word, ephathah, which means be opened. This is an Aramaic word, which is, was probably the language that was spoken by the people in the Decapolis. Also, the fact that Mark records this word is once again, and we've seen this before, once again evidence that what we're reading comes from eyewitness accounts. It's one of those little details that an eyewitness would have remembered. Similar to when Jesus raised the little girl in Mark chapter 6, he spoke the words Talitha Kumi. Similar idea. An eyewitness would have remembered those kind of details. And you might think to me, you might say to me, but he takes the man aside privately. True. But I think taking the man aside privately doesn't mean away from his disciples, but simply away from the crowd. His disciples are probably still there watching this. So he says this word in Aramaic, and Mark gives us the translation, be opened. And it's at that point the miracle happens. Look at verse 35. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. You know, as we've seen all along, Jesus' miracles work. Always. Jesus' miracles always work. Whether he's simply touching, whether he gives a command, or whether he does something a little odd here, they always work. The man's ears are opened, his tongue is released. That word released, uh, literally, or that word plainly, rather, literally means correctly. He could speak correctly. He could hear correctly. And then, let's revisit verse 36. Jesus does something we've seen before, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. We've seen that. Jesus charging people to tell no one, but it's interesting that he says it here because this is in stark contrast to the last time Jesus was in this area. Mark chapter five. You might remember that Jesus told the demoniac to go home and tell his friends all that the Lord had done for him. But now here, same area, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. He charges them, don't tell tell anyone. Why? Well, Jesus, in Mark chapter 5, he was leaving. In fact, he was getting into the boat when the demoniac came up to him and begged to go with him, and Jesus said, no, go home and tell everyone. Jesus was leaving that area, so he wouldn't be hindered by the crowds. This time, Jesus is spending time in this area. He's been trying to get away. He doesn't want a lot of attention, so Jesus wants this to be kept quiet. You may remember one of the reasons why Jesus might be trying to keep these things quiet. He said this before, except he was in Israel the other times. And one of the reasons why he might be saying this is because he wants 
He does not want for the people to get so excited that they force him to be king. You may remember that happened at the feeding of the 5,000. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that the people wanted to take Jesus and force him to be king. And so Jesus dismisses them, and then he sneaks off to pray. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. So something like that might be going on here. Just as Jesus helped the prosperous Seraphonician woman, so he helps this destitute man. And that's the point. Jesus knows no boundaries. He is in the middle of Gentile country, and it doesn't matter if they are well-to-do or dirt poor. Jesus extends his hand. The gospel reaches both far and wide. And what does this do for us? In our own hearts, it destroys all excuses. It demolishes all of our arguments. You may think that you have nothing to offer Jesus. You may see yourself as worthless. You might have such a low view of yourself that you're not even sure why Jesus would want to save you. But here's the thing. The gospel reaches you. On the contrary, you might think Jesus is lucky to have you. You might see yourself as superior to others. You might have such a high opinion of yourself that you're not sure how Jesus could get along without you. But you see, the gospel is for you. Don't you see that both extremes need to see their need for the gospel? If the gospel can break through and reach both extremes in our passage, if it can change their lives, then it can change yours. Doesn't matter if we're filled with pride or self loathing, the gospel is for us. So let me ask how are you letting either a low opinion or a high opinion of yourself keep you from growing as a Christian? How are you letting these things keep you from, how are you focusing on who you are instead of focusing on who he is? Don't be derailed by either a high view or low view of yourself. Fall at the feet of Jesus Christ. And here's another point. If Jesus was not put off by race, social status, or anything like that, then neither should we. Don't let a person's background deter you from showing them the love of Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, so the ground should be level in the heart of a Christian. Now, it's true of all of us. We all, because of how we were raised, because of this or that and the other in our lives, all of us have our own prejudices. Don't let those keep you from loving people as Christ desires you to love them. It's time to hand those prejudices over to Jesus Christ and let him do a work in your heart. Jesus charges them to tell no one, but then look what happens. The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. It's like they couldn't help it. And on one hand, you kind of understand. Okay, If we experienced a supernatural miracle, 
That would be a hard thing not to share. The word zealously here means more and more. So the more Jesus charged them, the more they proclaim it. And then Mark gives us a very interesting detail here at the end. Look at verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure. Their minds were just blown. They were astonished beyond measure saying this. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That phrase, he has done all things well, that sounds a lot like the creation account in Genesis 1. And God saw all that he has made, and it was all very good. One of the things that we've seen throughout our study in Mark is that Jesus undoes evil. He undoes the effects of sin. All physical brokenness, deaf, mute, lame, all of those are a result of sin. Sin breaks the relationship with God, but it manifests itself through physical, mental, and emotional brokenness. When Jesus heals, he reverses that brokenness. And what those healed people experience is a snapshot of the Garden of Eden the way it was supposed to be. The broken now works like it was originally designed. And this points us, my friends, to the very purpose Jesus came. He came to restore that which was lost at the fall. These healings, just like all healings, is a snapshot. The girl was restored. She's no longer haunted by the demon. It's a snapshot she would go on to live her life with trouble. The man's ears and tongue were restored. It's a snapshot of Eden, but he's still a sinner in a sinful world. He might now be experiencing a piece of perfection, but not the whole picture yet. Jesus is still, in our story today, Jesus is still to do his greatest and most ultimate work, which is to defeat sin and death. The whole point of the cross was to do just that. It was to restore the brokenness of the fall. What Jesus does here in the lives of Gentile outcasts pointed to Jesus' ultimate purpose to fulfill and completely dispose of sin and thus disposing of the ravages of sin. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, my friends. He wants to level the ground in your heart and in mine. He wants us to see that it doesn't matter who we are or where we came from. His arms are open to us. He also wants us to see that it doesn't matter who others are or where they came from. Our arms should be open to them. And the path to inward change is the cross. The more we focus on what Christ did, the more the gospel will change us to look like our Savior, the more our hearts will love and accept those around us, no matter the background, no matter the color, no matter anything about them. So my friends, fix your eyes on the gospel. It will change you from the inside out. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that the gospel crashes through barriers of all kinds. Thank you that your plan of salvation included Gentiles. 
Thank you that it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from. We are welcome into the family of God through the gospel. Thank you for the good news of your life, death, and resurrection that has the power to change lives. We praise you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.